Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn about anything and everything. I'm your co-host, Caleb Mason. And my name is the Todd Father, a.k.a. Todd Hicksonball. We are going to be talking with Amy Williams, who has over 20 years of experience working with inner city youth. She also has an incredible nickname, the Hope Dealer. So with Amy, uh, Amy is a wealth of knowledge with youth. Um, if you're in youth ministry or whatever, uh, just being able to interact uh, with them and kind of being able to minister to them in their context. But, you know, Amy is so much more than that. She's actually uh, been featured uh, in a TED Talk. Um, I think I believe it was TED Talk, um, uh, TED Talk uh, Nashville. She's also a certified gang intervention specialist. And just so many cool things um, that she's she's done to really bring awareness and to begin to to fight for the cause, um, you know, the, uh, of these these a lot of times uh, kids who who are just marginalized and, and kind of thrown away. And so Amy was a fascinating discussion for us to have, um, just because she brought so much depth um, to, to the conversation of of just inner city youth. Yep, and if you want to check out that TED Talk, we'll link to it in the show notes as well, and so you can watch it there. And again, this is one of these types of conversations that we're really ign- we're ignorant about, and that yeah. I think that always makes it, at least for me, more enjoyable because I tend to learn a lot a lot more during these conversations as well. So, without further ado, we're going to join our conversation with Amy Williams. Well, Amy, welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. We're so excited to have you on today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You know, just as we get started, why don't you tell us what led you to get involved with urban ministry? Well, you know, I think it's funny when um, people kind of ask that question because I never even really thought I'd be in ministry, period. Uh, And so just to kind of say urban ministry, I just found myself working with kids, uh, started with Young Life in North Carolina. Uh, a little bit smaller urban in uh, Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill area, and found my way to Chicago, at which point I really just thought I was done with youth ministry. But uh, we know when God says it, it doesn't matter what you think. And (laughs) I uh, slowly found my way back into, uh, you know, the, the love of working with young people and it just so happened that God strategically placed me in the city. And so I don't even know if it was really a choice to choose urban ministry for myself. It was just how God strategically placed me and the passion that he gave me just kind of for kids on the margin and kids that society think have no value and have no worth. And uh, he just thought Chicago would be the place for me. And here I am. Can you tell us kind of what what. uh ministry looks like for you right now? Sure. Uh, it looks crazy uh, and messy and uh, beautiful. Um, so I have been in youth ministry for 23 years, and uh, currently I'm a gang intervention specialist. I work with kids in and out of the prison uh, cr- criminal justice system as well. So that's everything from those that may be on house arrest to probation, parole, currently incarcerated, and when they return, And just young people that are impacted by gang culture, because there are a lot of young people who might not necessarily be in a gang, but definitely impacted by it, 
their friends, their families um, are involved in that. And so by saying that, it would be like their girlfriends or their sisters or brothers, cousins or parents. Uh, And so for me, there is really no typical day. It looks like everything from waking up, hitting the block, um, going to court, uh, being in prisons, going by schools, hanging out with families on the block, uh, taking them to get drivers. I mean, the the typical, um, uh, I won't say typical, but, uh, you know, walking life with young people uh, that don't particularly maybe don't have resources, maybe don't have mentors, uh, maybe, and mostly don't have a lot of hope. So they call call me the hope dealer to the dope dealer. So they sling that dope and I sling that hope and his name is Jesus. So, um, yeah. So just love that. And the hope dealer. How'd you end up getting that name? Uh, That's a really good question. And it's been so long, I really can't remember. I think um, there's a gentleman named Wordsmith who was the neighborhood hope dealer. And somebody just out in L.A. and somebody just started calling me that. And I think I just kind of clung on to that. Yeah, it just made sense. So what would you say is different about being in like an inner city or urban context versus another context? Well, and I've had the opportunity to do both, having done uh, ministry in North Carolina to doing ministry in Chicago and L.A. and Boston and kind of the bigger urban centers. Um, A lot of the uh, different, I mean, there are so many differences, I really don't even know where to begin. And yet at the same time, I think a lot of times we get caught up in the urban versus suburban, right? When it's just, it's kids, um, all hurting kids trying to navigate life, figure out who they are and where they belong. And and uh, so when I think about an urban context, and I hate the word versus at all, an urban context and a suburban context or a rural context, for me, kind of the first thing that pops up would be culture. It would be access or limited access to resources and um, just the kind of the the way of life, the way of living and the mindset that would be in the hustle and bustle of a city versus, um, you know, some rural or urban uh, uh, suburban context of um, not having a lot of activity to do. We have tons of activities. Tons of different things kids can be a part of in the city. A lot of times kids just don't know about those or don't have access to those. Uh, The culture, again, of just what it means to be in a city of a variety of different cultures themselves, ethnicities, races. Uh, You know, the one thing I love about Chicago is every single uh, race, every single ethnicity is represented in the city. And so we have access to be a part of those cultures, explore those cultures. But along with that comes a lot of uh, division as well. Whereas when I was in North Carolina, there were like pretty much two cultures, black and white. Uh, And so being able to have that, 
There are just a lot of different ways, and the just the mentality of young pity, uh, young pity, young people in the city. Um, it just seems like there's more of a survival, more of a fight, more of a constant awareness of what's around you and what's happening, and a different kind of anxiety than when I was in North Carolina. Not that there's not anxiety or those things. But I have found in the city there are just heightened levels of those. Uh, so those are just a couple of things that I see are, you know, kind of different. What What are some common misconceptions about urban ministry? Well, I, I think one of the most common misconceptions is that urban means black. Um, urban means poor. Uh, urban means hip hop. And so if your first definition of urban and the minute you think about urban is poor black and brown folks in the city that just like listen to hip hop and, uh, you know, everything that comes with that, then that is the largest misconception. I mean, we have um, uh, black, Latino, Asian, Middle Eastern kids that live in the city and they're urban, too. Uh, so urban is more of a the understanding of a culture, right? And I keep going back to culture and mindset of living in a city. It's not tied down to um, I'm doing urban ministry because I work with black kids. There are black and brown kids in rural communities and in suburban communities and in the country and living on the beach and all of those different kind of places. And so we have to be very careful not to think that urban just means uh, that. And so in a lot of ways, when people say, you know, I live in, I work or I do ministry uh, with urban kid, urban city kids, the immediate go-to is poor black and brown kids. And that's not fully the truth. It is a lot of truth, but it's not fully the truth. And so urban ministry uh, and the way that youth ministry and the way that our Christian world has communicated or has defined that uh, is really mostly doing ministry in under-resourced communities. But I know some people that have a lot of resources uh, in the north side of the city. Uh, that's just as urban as the south side of the city, Right. And so I think we, we need to begin to have that conversation again of how do you define the term urban and then ask that question again, right? Sure. So, so just shifting gears a little bit, I think that one of the things that, that I've often heard uh, talked about that really does have a large impact when you do uh, ministry with kids more in, in more of an inner city setting is, is gang culture. Sure. And so could you talk to us a little bit about the impact that gang culture has on students that you may be seeing on whatever, however it is? I mean, whether it is you uh, kind of mentoring and counseling them or even in more traditional ministry settings at church um, or, or, or whatever your ministry setting is. Talk to us about the impact that gang culture has um, on the on students. Well, I, and, and that is a. a huge question, right? Because gang culture um, affects every community and every city uh, differently. And we know that gangs just aren't in the inner city. Again, I think that's another misconception sure. is that people believe that there are just gangs in, you know, LA, Chicago, and New York. 
when the truth is like there are gangs in Naperville, Illinois and, you know, Podunk, Oregon. I mean, they're and they may not have as huge an impact as in the city where you can recruit more people. But gang culture is pretty much all across America in every single context. We just get the attention because our numbers are larger. Um, I, I am always with the belief and the knowledge that our country was founded on violence. Um, I always call Christopher Columbus the largest gangbanger that I know um, because he kind of came in and took over land and property and did it violently. And in, in a lot of ways that parallels the gang culture. But one of the largest misconceptions about gang culture is that every single young person that's involved in a gang is violent. And not every kid is violent. It's like the, the few apples in a bunch, right? And a lot of reasons why kids join gangs isn't to be violent and to run around and kill and rob and do all of those things. Gang, gangs in most contexts, in most environments, reasons why kids are so drawn to them, the top two reasons, well, the top three reasons would be looking for a place to belong, money is a huge one because money really provides, I mean, gangs really provide sources of income and identity. A place to belong, helping them to form an identity, and in most cases, a way to earn money. Now, I work with a lot of young people that aren't necessarily looking to live the, the, I mean, trying to get money to like buy, you know, Maserati or Tesla or, or, you know, a thousand clothes and a million sneakers. A lot of my young people are looking to get the money simply to survive, um, to help their parents pay bills, to make sure their little brothers and sisters get fed. And um, in a lot of situations, they're unable to get employment. In a lot of situations, uh, they don't want to work. And this is the this is what they believe is the, is the easy money. And so when you have a lot of young people who are out there feeling really hopeless about life, who are even hungry, have no clothes, don't have any mentors, don't know anything about resources. You have a very horrible education system and not just an education system that's bad, but under-resourced. So they're cutting everything in those schools, guidance counselors, music programs, sports, the whole nine. The schools look like prisons themselves. We have some schools here in Chicago that have rats and roaches running around while these kids are in school. You have kind of all of this stuff around you and a city and an environment that says, we don't care about young people. And then you have a group that gathers together that is about brotherhood, right? It's, it's, a, it's a very um, uh, 
the way that the brotherhood is perceived, right? Like it's it's not the truth. But they put out, we're brothers, we're a family, we got your back, right? Until you get into prison or get in trouble. Um, they see these guys walking to school every day. They see these guys on the block. The guys are giving them money. The guys are helping them out. At some point, then they say, you know, we got your back. Why don't you come be a part of this? Because nothing else is offering that. What would you do as a 13 or 14-year-old kid? What would you, would you do if you're angry and you're you're traumatized and you don't have family around? And, I mean, let's, be, let's tell the truth. The church isn't out there on the street doing that. Mm-hmm. The church has a come-to-us stand. The gangs go to them. And that's kind of what my ministry is modeled around is the go to them model. I model my ministry after what Jesus did, right? Like I go to them because I know that the gangs are out there on the street recruiting these kids. We need to be out there on the streets too. And so the, you know, when, when, when you're part of that gang culture and it gets bigger and bigger and it just, it meets a need. These kids, Father Greg Boyle says, these kids aren't running from something. They're running to something. And so what, as the church, are we giving these same kids the opportunity to run to? And I could keep going on and on and on and and talking about how this affects families and how this impacts violence. Um, But, you know, we, we have limited time. But I hope that that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea or kind of changes a little bit of the perceptions even of why young people might join gangs. Um, If you knew some of the stories, half of the, well, more than half of the kids that I work with, um, I just tell them, I'm like, yep, I would have joined a gang too in your situation. Um, And so we have to start looking past what we think about gangs and get to hear the stories and understand why these kids join the need that it fills, and then ask how the church can counteract that. And so that would be kind of my follow-up to that is, I mean, you, you mentioned that churches oftentimes have a come-to-us mentality. If you had the platform, which you kind of do in this moment, um, to be able to speak to churches, what would you ask them to do to begin to shift this mentality? And what, what can they begin to do to start to to go, as you said, go to go to the streets and begin to 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 make an impact outside of the walls. What would you what would you have them begin to do in the attitudes they should take? The very, very first thing. Because I think if you don't get past the first thing that I'm gonna tell you, then you just need to stay inside the walls. <laughs> um the first thing is we have to get rid of the they and them we and uh, we mentality, us versus them. I need Jesus as much as the gang member on the street. I am just as messy. I have just as much sin and pride and hurt. I have the exact same need. And for whatever reason, I always say that I think Christians are some of the most arrogant people that I know. And most of the time, I'd rather hang out with gang members and those in prisons than Christians a lot of times. And I understand why um, a lot of my gang members uh, will not go to the church, right? Because it's this whole mentality of us versus them, right? And it needs to be um, 
We're in this together. This is our community. We are all family. We're the biggest dysfunctional family, right? Like in the world, humans, we're all family and we're incredibly dysfunctional, but we only have each other. And um, I have a very strong relationship with one of the top highest gang leaders uh, in the city. And recently he was being interviewed about me for um, a program that I'm going to be on on TBN next month. And they kind of asked him, like, what was what's different about this Amy as a Christian than any other Christians? And I thought what he said was so powerful. And I, and I just wish everybody could hear was that he he said that like she has never had the posture that she's better than us, but more like she's one of us. She's part of us. We're all part of the same family. The first year that he and I built, he said she didn't come at me with Christian. She just listened. She just asked questions. She just validated my story. She just made me feel like um, number two, what the church can do, that people are not projects to be fixed. And as Christians, we kind of get this do, 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 like this red target on a person and like that person, we need to fix them. We need to save them. We need to, and people aren't projects. People have their own lives, their own stories, their own journeys, their own relationships with God. And we just get the privilege and the blessing to walk alongside them, listen to them, encourage them, right? Like be there with them, have them minister to us and love on us. I have so many non-Christian gang member, uh, young people, uh, young people in prison that minister to me all the time, right? Because we're in it together. The difference is I know Jesus. And so I have another resource for them, right? That is another resource. The only real resource for uh, healing, uh, for, for being able to, um, you know, be everything that you were born and created to be. And so that's kind of what I contribute to the rela relationship, but I'm not the leading actor in a person's life. I'm a supporting role. Right. And so I'm just an additional resource and I see all of my relationships with, uh, those that are on the margins, um, in no way that I am called to save them, rescue them. In many cases, they've come to save and rescue me. Um, we do it together. We do it together. And so if anybody wants to or feels called to begin the work of being on the street and working with the kind of young people and young adults that I work with, you, you have to change your total mentality it can't be they and them and we and us. Um, it can't be they are projects to be fixed and they need all of these things um, and we're going to save and rescue them. It has to be a we're in this community together. How can we love each other? How can we help each other? I'm here to walk life with you. I'm here to listen and validate your existence, your story. Um, and and I think it begins with a mentality. You can have programs. You can have after school, you can have all of these things. But if you don't change the way that you look at these young people, then you're shooting yourself in the foot. How do you get rid of that mentality of us versus them? And what are the things, some of the things that you've done to kind of combat that mentality? Well, for one, 
I have become very real about who I am in the kingdom, right? Like I am a hot mess in need of Jesus and he just uses me to help other people, right? So we're hurting people, helping other people get through their hurt, right? And they're helping us get through our hurt. It's different for me too, I will share with this, because my brother was a gang member. My brother was in and out of the prison system. So I'm also coming from the point, and this was before I even knew Christ, right? But I saw how people treated me when they found out about my brother. And I didn't like that feeling. And that was not a good recruiting tool to have me come to Christ, right? Based on how people treated me because of my brother. Um, And my brother is one of the most gifted, most talented, most brilliant people that I know. And I would always be like, if you would just get to know him, right? Like, and you don't know his story. You don't know how he got here. Um, But to be able to like see people the way that God sees them, that's always, always my challenge is that to see through all of the stuff that we put out, right? Because the most hardcore gang member, the most violent gang member, the gang member that is the coldest is the one that has been hurt the most, is the one who is doing extra to protect himself from getting hurt more. And if we could see through that and pass that and not be scared of that and just pursue them like God pursues us and get to that that gooey, tender, hurting center and and share that kind of that love and that grace and, and that hope. Right. And so for me, it's it's always seeing people the way that God sees them, that they're not projects to be fixed, that we're all part of, of a community and that I'm just as messy as them. I am just as messy as them. Right. We are all messy. Um, and then hearing the stories, that's also how I got to, to that place is when when I listen to the stories, I'm like, wow, like I don't agree with it. Because I know a lot of people that have been through stuff like that and don't join gangs. But that's your story. That's your, I don't validate it. I'm not like, yes, let's gangbang for the world. Like, I don't validate those choices. I mean, those those decisions or choices. But I validate their, their experience. I can't take that from them. And then the more that I hear the stories, the more I get it, the more I understand. And the more that I can see the real root issue of why. Right. When we can get to the why and not the what they're doing, but why they're doing it, um, then we can build real relationships and introduce them to a path of healing. But if you're just looking at people as the what they are and what they're doing, not the why and that God, that they're God's idea, too, um, then there's there's just no way that we can have any kind of impact. And so that's just kind of how it starts for me. Uh, I love that uh, that mentality and way of thinking. <clears throat> As we, I just, I just wanted to shift again a little bit and begin to talk about the role that education plays. Um, and we were talking a little bit before before we started recording just about how there are, you know, another one of these misconceptions I think is, you know, that all these schools are are in in, in the cities are terrible. But you you know you, you pointed out to me that there are actually some really good schools um, that are in these cities. But one of the things I think that I really wanted to ask you about is 
how education plays a role in in students' lives as they they move through through high school. You talked about how a lot of these schools are under resourced. Yes. Um, and then as as they begin to move into secondary education, so college, mm-hmm. how things are kind of structured in a way that does prevent them from having all of the opportunities that maybe other students in other areas would have. Can you talk to us a little bit about the structure of the education system and the role that it plays in, in these students' lives and being able to, quote, unquote, make it out or be able to, to change the narrative of their story? Could you talk to us a little bit about how education plays a role in this? Sure. Um, and, you know, coming from the the group that I work with, unfortunately, a lot of my young people do not get to college. Um, There are a lot of systems in place, and and we address that, we talk about that, we call that the school-to-prison pipeline. We talk about um, mass incarceration and how it starts, you know, even in first and second grade, this pipeline and all of the things that are part of that, that actually funnel a lot of kids in the city, a lot of children of color out of school into the streets, eventually landing them in the prison system. Uh, The statistic or the fact is that, and I'll ask both of you, do you know how they determine how many prisons they will build in the future? I do not. No, I don't. No. They determine that by third and fourth grade reading and math scores. And so they're already at a young age determining that from kindergarten to third grade, you're learning how to read. From third grade on, you're reading to learn. If you don't know how to read at that age, right, then the future for you, more than likely, not all the time, unless there's real intervention, more than likely you are going to end up either being suspended, you're going to drop out, um, you're going to become incredibly frustrated, you're going to have disciplinary issues, all of these things which can funnel you out of the school system, into the street, into the courtroom, um, eventually in the prison system. And so that's just one small reason why we have to we have to uh, invest in education. And what we're seeing in a lot of our cities and a lot of our urban centers um, is the closing down of schools, uh, no budget, lowering budgets, cancellations of, again, music programs, sports programs, um, guidance counselors, mental health um, uh, programs, after school programs. The time that most young people get into trouble is on Friday between three and five o'clock. And then after that, between three and five o'clock, Monday through Thursday. If there's not an after school program, if schools aren't offering sports, if schools aren't able to offer um, all of these things because there aren't any, uh, there's not any money or resources for that. What do kids do? Where do they go? And I don't think people directly link education and incarceration, education and crime together. And it's so easy to see how if we don't have a good education system, what these kids will do and where they will go. And the problem is that a lot of times as well, if you're dealing with kids who have trauma, 
and who do have mental health issues, how that plays also into the education system when those resources um, are being removed, then they're just kids who are getting into trouble who eventually will just be sent to the principal's office, who eventually will be suspended, who will be suspended for one to two to three weeks and then try to come back and catch up, can't catch up, will get incredibly frustrated, fail or drop out. I mean, there's just there's just so many ways that a poor education system impacts um, uh, the kind of young people uh, that I'm involved with. And then you add zero tolerance policies and criminalizing the classrooms and um, suspending kids for nonviolent behaviors. I mean, uh, anybody that would love to know more about the school to prison pipeline can contact me. I've done workshops on this and I can send you a ton of information uh, about how this works. And so it's not just right, like getting them to college. And for a lot of young people, like college isn't even a thought or a thing. Um, it's kind of just getting through first. Right. And I'm talking about my kind of kids. I'm talking about my kids on the margins, my kids that have experienced incredible trauma, um, who are involved in gang activities in and out of the prison systems, whose parents have been in and out of the prison system. Um, and again, I'm not blanket coding every single kid, but even the, the brightest student, the straight A student who will get scholarships or offers from Harvard and Yale and all of those schools still have to press and deal with all of these um, these issues when they're going and being a part of a of a really bad education system. Sure. It really does one of the common threads that I hear, especially with this this the school to prison pipeline uh, and, and other things we've been talking about is is the socioeconomic structure. That exists mm -hmm. um, in these in these areas. Talk to us a little bit about the socioeconomics, um, and, and and one of the things that I oftentimes hear, in fact, here in Canton is is I'll hear people talk about food deserts. Yeah, I'll hear people talk about how um, there are just basic things that actually aren't a part of the the city. I know there's an operation right now going on where there's a church working with the local government trying to get even uh, something as as simple as um a place to wash and dry people's clothes mm -hmm. uh, places things like that talk to us about socioeconomic structures and how how it is that they impact students and how um doing ministry oftentimes mean means uh becoming involved with and and, and kind of stepping into the world of socioeconomic structures well i mean when when you're doing and what we find with most people when you're doing um, ministry in the city and urban centers, um, it totally is about a holistic approach. It's not just the spiritual piece. And sometimes you don't even get to the spiritual piece for quite a while, right? Um, because a, a kid that's hungry really could care less about um, Noah, Noah. Uh, and the ark and Jonah and the whale. They, I mean, they're they're hungry. Um, they've been traumatized. They've been um, molested. They don't see fairness in the world. They're hungry. Um, they're uh, may have a parent that is strung out um, and a dad who isn't 
present, uh, whether he's uh, dead, incarcerated, or had just made the choice not to. I mean, and these are all kind of the typical stories, um, but not every story, right? Because there are so many incredible, wonderful parents who are fighting tooth and nail. Um, and the difference between kind of those parents and other parents is that in saving their kids, they reach out and they say, you know, we need this. Can you help us do that? Like they're not ashamed to have a village help them to raise um, their children. But when you're in uh, um, these under-resourced communities um, and poverty is what you see. I mean, let's let's just start with that, right? Like just getting up in the morning and walking outside and just seeing a community that has abandoned buildings, trash everywhere, um, storefront businesses are closed down, groups of gang members here. All you see are, you know, like in the city, liquor stores, fast food. You can't get fresh fruits and vegetables. Nobody's growing gardens. Um, or, I mean, you have a few that are growing gardens, but not many. I mean, what is the automatic thing that you start telling yourself every single day about yourself and what other people think about you, right? That's one of those things that shapes what young people think about themselves. And then you go into a school that looks and feels the same way. That's why I love teachers. I love, 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 love teachers. What an incredible ministry opportunity to be a teacher. You're spending six to eight hours with young people um, who are dealing with all of these issues and the opportunity that you have to be with them and build life and pour life into them. And at the same time, the struggle of teachers in that they can't really teach much because they're, they are dealing with so many of these issues and just trying to keep young people um, uh, focused and uh, helping them walk through life and all of those different kind of things. And I think, again, that's not just the city, right? That's every community. But sometimes the city just has more factors that come against um, our young people. And when, so I used to teach a performance art, uh, social justice, uh, hip hop class in an alternative high school. Um, and alternative high school being for kids that have dropped out, have been kicked out, um, but still want to get a high school diploma. Like this is like their last stop shop to be able to have another opportunity. So in my classroom, I had like four or five different gang sets represented um, I had the first class of the morning, which was the most challenging. And I'll share why. Um, this is a great example of some of those socioeconomic challenges. I had the first class in the morning. And so I either had kids who were incredibly exhausted, couldn't focus, couldn't pay attention, um, or just super, super hyper. hyper. Um, and a lot of the time they were exhausted because of having to work a job at night, having to get up in the morning. I had one girl had to get up in the morning, had to, um, her mom was addicted. So she had to feed and dress her little sister, bring her to school, find money for lunch money to give to her little sister. She comes to school after having gotten into a fight with her mom and I'm supposed to teach her. I'm supposed to teach her. She hadn't had breakfast. She comes in with a 
Seven Up and Hot Cheetos. That's her breakfast. That's what she's doing to feed her brain, right? And give her energy. And so as a teacher, I would try to make sure I had food in the morning or um, fruit, you know, apples and juice or like something positive and healthy. I'd have to be able to understand that they're not paying attention, not because of the class or the content or because of me, but because they're exhausted, they're traumatized, they're stressed, they're anxious. And to be able to give kids permission, if you need to get up and walk out and get some fresh air, if you, uh, you know, you need to, to be able to do that. If not, while you're in my classroom, don't put your head down, just go stand up, you know, like understanding those things while trying to teach and educate them um, as well. And so what we have are a lot of young people who are dealing with a lot of adult issues and don't know resources, don't have access, don't have, you know, this great food. And then in Chicago, we're dealing with gentrification of those neighborhoods. And that has really impacted violence and uh, kind of the anxiety um, as well of our community. And now not being able to afford to live where they've always lived and then being um, replaced or displaced into other communities, um, especially where there are already set gangs there. And now they can't afford to live in this neighborhood. So now you're taking this gang and moving them into another gang neighborhood that's increasing the violence. So lots of lots of ways that that impacts our young people, uh, the way they learn and the way that they see themselves. You know, Amy, just as you know, as I'm hearing you talk, I can just imagine um, that it, this, it can be very overwhelming. You know, you hear all. <laughs> you, yeah. You hear, you hear yeah. You you hear everything that's happening, and then you don't just think, you know, that it's happening to the kids or it's happening to the students, but it's happening to their dads. It's, it's, it happens systemically. Right. But, yeah. I mean, so, like, if what would you say to the person who's like, you know, what this is overwhelming, but I want I want to do something. What would you say? You know, what's the first step that people could do? The very first step is to pray. You have got to seek God and you have got to hear God's call for you to do it. It is not enough to just feel something because we know one minute I'm in, I I feel one way about a kid and then they say something to me and then 10 minutes later I feel different, right? Like I cannot depend on what I feel if I depended on what I felt, I would have left this work a long time ago. Um, I have buried almost 10 kids in the last three and a half years. There's no way that what I feel about this is what is motivating me. What is motivating, what drives me, what keeps me passionate about it is knowing that God has called me to this. That God sees something in me, that God has opened doors for me that bless other people, that help. Like, I know that I know that I know that I'm called to this. Um, now, everybody has a role in it, though, right? Like, I'm in it full time. I'm on the ground. Like, I'm in it. And not everybody is called to that. People can have a lot of compassion and a lot of heart. They, they have resources. I mean, there are ways to be able to do this work. But that's why you have to pray about it. You have to see where what your lane is right and for some people the lane is to 
raise support and money to help those that are on the ground, right? Some people's lanes are to be able to start an after-school program at a school, to get a church to adopt a teacher, adopt a school. Um, there are all of these different ways, but you really have to pray about it because the biggest thing about this, and, I, and I'll share a story, the biggest thing about this and what really makes an impact is consistency, right? And so uh, this gang leader that I was talking about, um, we were sitting around, a church did a block party, shut down the street, you know, had all the music, had the bouncy house, had the free food, you know, was going around talking to people, packed up and left. And I asked the gang leader, like, so what do you what do you think about things like this? And they were like, oh, I mean, y'all can do them if you want to. I mean, believe me, we will eat your hot dogs. We will take your prayers. We'll use the bouncy house and we'll listen to your music. But in the end, most of the time, it really just doesn't even matter because what we know is you're going to pack up and you're going to go back to the church. You're going to pat yourself on the back, say, this is what we did. And then we won't see you again until next year. And so it's that thing of, are you doing more harm than good just because you want to help? Or did God call you to do this, to build relationship, to help those that are already on the ground? Like, what has God called you to do in this situation? And so the very first thing to do is to pray, to seek God's face. Then the second thing that I would say to do would be to have conversations with people who are already doing the work. Um, there's this thing about the inner city that we have and that we feel about suburban churches. And I'm just going to keep it real um, because I can. And uh, and y'all don't see my face. So uh, <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. Um, we have this thing where a lot of times suburban churches will come into the city and do something thinking that they're helping or saving the poor churches or the poor people in the community because they have resources. And what a kick in the face that is. It's as if a lot of people don't believe that God is already doing amazing things in the city through the churches that are currently already here. Um, and, and again, that's not every church, but that is mostly what we have seen. And uh, the churches will come into the city, do a little project, help out a little bit, and then go right back to their churches. We won't see from them. We won't hear from them. They'll come in and bring volunteers in for the week of Thanksgiving, and then we don't see or hear from them again till the next Thanksgiving. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll feel like we've done our part for the city. So the second thing that I would say is that if God has really called you to this and you have a real heart and a passion and you have the resources and you know that you're able to help, meet with churches and people that are already doing the work and don't offer anything to them. Just learn from them, learn with them, walk with them for a little bit, ask questions, and then pray how you can partner with them. Not create something new or not do, but like, see what God is already doing. God is doing the most incredible things in Chicago and you will never see it on the news ever, never, never, never. But the things he's doing is it's incredible. It's mind blowing. And so pray 
and then connect with somebody who's already doing the work and see how you can come alongside and help build that what's already being done um, in a way that God would strategically place you with them. You know, Amy, as we're getting ready to, you know, conclude, um, what would you say have been one or two lessons that, you know, God has taught you or that you've learned in your time with uh, an urban ministry or in an urban context? Um, okay, so many things. <laughs> I'm going to tell me to tell you two. Um, uh, but the first one that God put in my mind, because um, he's still reminding me of this every day. So I have a little bit of a confession. Um, I am a recovering um, fourth member of the Trinity. Um, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit decided that uh, they didn't need me sitting at the table with them, um, telling them what works best, what looks best, and uh, how we can save this kid. Um, they're always like, no, nah, it's a good idea, Amy, but uh, we got this. We're good. We'll let you know. We'll let you know. Um, so for me, the biggest thing that I've learned is to know my role right? Know my role. And I am not, he's the great I am and I'm the great I am not. Um, I am just called to show love and grace and compassion. And I have to know what I'm called to do and what's God's job. And it's God's job to say, it's not mine. If that gang member doesn't come to know Christ, that's on, that's on God, right? Like, God's the one that draws people. God is the one that changes the hearts. God is the one. But God calls me to build relationship and love on people. So the biggest lesson that I've learned as a, a reforming control freak as well um, is that I know your role. Um, know who you are and know who he is. And then the second largest, uh, the biggest lesson that I've learned that I've shared already, but I have to share it again, is that people are not projects to be fixed and that we have the incredible privilege and opportunity to walk life with people who have given us permission, who have invited us into their lives. We, we I mean, I always ask kids, you know, uh, permission um, to be a part of their life, to be a part of their story and that they're not projects to be fixed and that we have to look at young people the way all people the way that God sees them, not through our filters, not through our trauma, not through our Christianity, right? But through the way that God sees them. They are God's idea. We didn't think them up. We didn't create them. God did. God knows who they are and what they're doing. Um, they're not projects to be fixed. So those are pretty much the top two. Amy, thanks so much for joining us today. If people want to learn more from you or get involved with what you're doing, how can they do that? Uh, you can check me out on my website at ahopedealer.org. Um, and you can just Google Amy Williams, a hope dealer, and you'll see all of my stuff. I have lots of videos, things to download, um, lots of resources. And so please email me, ahopedealer at gmail.com. Look me up. Uh, I have a speaking request form. If you would love for me to come through your church and educate or teach about any of these issues or speak with your young people, that's my second love and passion is speaking and training. Um, and so, yeah, just come to my website. Join me. Awesome. Thanks so much, Amy. Thank you. Todd, what was some of your takeaways from our interview with Amy? 
One of the biggest things I think that I know I've fallen into this just in ministry is, you know, this idea that we have the answer um, and, and, and not as the church not going and listening um, to the needs that these people actually have, but instead saying, you know, hey, we're going to come in and we're going to do all these things and we have what you need and you just have to capitulate to us. I think that's, I think that one of the things I got from her is um, if you're going to do that, just stay where you are. Like you don't need to come into these areas um, at all. Like just stay where you are, stay doing what you're doing because that's not what these people need. What about you? Yeah, I think that's great because I think, you know, and I think it's just kind of human nature for us to want to solve problems right? and everything. And sometimes that's, it's just not the. It's not what's needed. Yeah, it's not what's needed. People yeah. need to be listened to, and sometimes you just need to say, you know what? I'm not sure. I know what the answer is, but I'm here. It's it's, it's 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 just loving people, right? Like it's just loving people and, and, and dealing with what they need. Well, I think another thing is was interesting is she talked about how you know she actually has friends. She's she has built like relationships with with key gang like gang lead not just members but gang leaders in in Chicago and how. You know, she said that oftentimes she has more in common with them than she does with Christians um, that are in some of these churches. And so, you know, I found that to be really interesting, you know, as the church, you know, what are we building? Are we building ourselves um, as this this great white hope or, you know, are we actually wanting to form relationships and do some of the work that Jesus himself actually did? If you enjoyed this episode, be sure not to miss our next episode. The best way to make sure that you don't miss our next episode is by subscribing to our podcast on your podcast player, whether it's Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or like Todd or I, Overcast is what we use to listen to. Also, if you learned something from this episode, let us know what you learned on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, or just let us know what you're learning about in general. You can hit us up on our handles on um, Instagram and Twitter and everything, and you can find those. There's also an interesting player that I just recently found called Auto Radio. So if you guys want to check that out, you can just find that in the App Store. It's in both Google Play and um, on iTunes. So you can you can or not on iTunes on the Apple the Apple Store. So you can check that out as well. You can also let us know what you're learning about by leaving a rating or writing a review of the podcast on iTunes. You can let us know from this episode or from past episodes or let us know how we can improve the podcast as well and let us know some of the people or some of the topics that you'd like us to cover. Just at us on Twitter. Actually, at Caleb because, you know, I don't like, don't at me, bro. Thanks so much for listening to this week's Learner's Corner podcast. Until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Todd Father out. <laughs>